Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 127. In this episode, we're talking about Paul then and now with Dr. Matthew Novenson. Dr. Matthew Novenson is senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Edinburgh and the author of the new collection of essays entitled Paul Then and Now, published by Erdmans. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Jennifer Guo, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. It was a blast to have Dr. Novenson on this uh, podcast to chat about his uh, brand new book, this collection of essays. How did you all enjoy our conversation with Dr. Novenson? I really appreciated how Dr. Novenson was thoughtful in trying to find the strain of thought in this kind of eclectic collection of essays that he'd written over a period of time while he's been doing other book projects. And it's really about how we read Paul. And it's, uh, it was challenging and it's conversant with uh, scholarship today, but it also kind of has practical applications in um, ministry for me as I, as I think through these things hermeneutically and, uh, and lead people to do the same. It's hard for me to pick what I enjoyed the most from this conversation because I just love all things Paul. But I think that probably some of the most impactful things um, maybe for our listeners will be the ways that Dr. Novenson talked about how Paul is weird because myself and most of our listeners might be Christian or grew up in these traditions where we've become so used to the writings of Paul that we've normalized them, kind of like what Dr. Novenson talks about in the book. And so some of the ways in which the things that he says are actually weird, I think um, will probably be um, really surprising and beneficial to hear. And it might uh, change the way that we read Paul from now on also to not just uh, assume the things that we've always heard or read from the pulpit or in our theology books. One of the things I liked about this episode is the way that Dr. Novenson emphasizes the difference between ourselves and these ancient texts. And um, he emphasizes that we really need to mind that gap carefully. Uh, and yeah, he'll, he'll talk about that throughout. And he'll talk about making Paul weird, uh, as we mentioned. Yeah, you have a lot to look forward to. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Matthew Novenson. Well, Dr. Novenson, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks to all you guys for having me. So we're really excited to talk about this uh, collection of essays that you've got on on Paul's writings, essays that you've written over the past um, decade or more. Um, it's it's wonderful to see it come together. I'm wondering as we begin and, and dive into some of the the specific arguments that you have and some of the different essays, if uh, maybe you could speak to how you kind of envision the coherence of this collection and what kind of ties it all together in your view. Because obviously, not every essay that you've written um, it has been incorporated. Here. So, uh, in your view, what what sort of brings it all together? Um, the 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 beating heart of it, I suppose, is uh, hermeneutical questions around reading Paul's letters. So, I uh, I've been working on Paul quite a bit for quite a few years, and had and uh, still have. We're near the end, hopefully, uh, a, a book project that I was aiming toward. 
but along the way was writing lots of other ad hoc things for uh, a journal here or a Feshrift there or a conference uh, and things like that. None of which was on the topic of the book. Um, there were other things to do with Paul and casting an eye back over them uh, during COVID lockdown, actually, when I couldn't get into a library and do any, uh, you know, constructive research. Uh, I realized that over time, I had actually been reflecting quite a lot on uh, what we talk about when we talk about Paul, uh, kind of without trying to write a book about hermeneutics, I, I felt like I kept coming back to these questions. So that's the red thread through the 12 uh, pieces in, in the book. And the, the first one is a kind of programmatic attempt to stitch these things together and to plant a flag about where I think we as a, as a group of interpreters stand nowadays with, in relation to these questions. So um, there's lots, as, as you all know, there's lots of sort of actual readings of texts you know, uh, exegesis claims about, you know, what this or that text means in this or that context, but the, the, the umbrella over it all, I think is trying to reflect on the problem of hermeneutics when reading Paul. Thanks for that overview, Dr. Novinson. Um, in that programmatic essay, you mention how um, it is really significant that Paula Fredrickson's uh, Paul the Pagan's Apostle made Paul weird again and it seems like this make Paul weird again kind of slogan is something that a lot of early readers uttered when they were reading and responding to various parts of your book. And so it seems like that's something that also binds these essays together. So without giving away all the ways that you flesh that out in your programmatic essay, can you give our listeners just a little bit of a teaser um, about this making Paul weird again that seems to be very important in this collection? So the, the label of weird came out, it's in, it's in one of the essays where I was dialoguing with Paula Fredrickson on her uh, really remarkable book from 2017, I guess it is, Paul, Paul the Pagan's Apostle, um, which she would say, and she says in the book, is a, just a, a kind of, you know, a hard-nosed uh, putting Paul in his first century Jewish apocalyptic place. Fredrickson is really interesting in this regard because she's not only, uh, I mean, a, a tremendous, really expert historian and reader of texts. But she spends lots of time working on Paul and Jesus and Gospels. Uh, mo and most of us who do that most of the time are Christian people, and she's not. She's Jewish. And uh, there's another interesting uh, layer there where she doesn't sit to these texts in the same way that Christians who also regard them as scripture sit to them. And um, anyway, so for all, all the, the reasons that make up the mind of Paula Fredrickson. Uh, when I read her book, uh, I mean, I found it really compelling in lots of ways as a sort of situated historical reading. But the, the, the overall impression I got was this is, uh, Paul just comes off something so very strange in this. And I mean, of, of all the New Testament characters and writers, I at least, and I think I'm not alone in this. I'm accustomed to thinking of Paul as kind of a more buttoned down, you know, he's all, you know, in a, in, a, in a lot of 20th century interpretation, everyone was always congratulating, congratulating Paul for, for, for being against enthusiasm, you know, for not being too out there for being very sort of, uh, you know, decent and in order and rational and so on. And, um, 
And I knew that wasn't sort of a per perfectly apt description that that was very loaded for the scholars who were writing that. But reading Fredrickson, I was uh, I just got this impression of this is a, it's this is unlike any other portrait of Paul I've seen for 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 those kinds of reasons. He is, you know, the 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 furthest thing from buttoned down and orderly and anti enthusiastic and so on. So something. So I mean, among scholars now working, I think Fredrickson is one of the very very best at this at at uh, being able to read in a way that both makes sense once you follow the argument through historically, but then it also shows you how how really un unlike us in certain, you know, sort of chronological respects, uh, even a character as familiar as Paul uh, is. And so that's the context in, in dialogue with her in which I started talking about the, the, the weirdness of Paul. And so it is in this book, a little bit of a, a shorthand for the kind of historical reading that can still do a lot of good, I think, for us uh, hermeneutically, like you know, defamiliarizing and uh, making us question certain things we sort of normally hum along, thinking that we know that we really don't know. Perhaps to entice our listeners to uh, buy your comparatively amazingly cheap book uh, for 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 an academic uh, set, set of essays. Thank you, Erdmans. <laughs> um, what is the weirdest thing about Paul that you espouse in your book <laughs> or, or something that people might find really shocking and weird. Yeah. Oh man. Um, hard to choose just one. Uh, maybe, okay. maybe two. Well, one, okay. Here's one that certainly <laughs> comes to mind, uh, but it may be because you're asking the question and uh, you have researched and you and I have discussed some of this, but uh, so uh, one claim in the book that I think will read as weird. I know, I, well, people have told me, so, you know, if the, some people who've read the book or heard me talk about this find it weird, even to the point of causing offense sometimes, is the idea that lots of, lots of familiar passages that are widely taken to be Paul just kind of talking about the Christian life to, you know, to use a kind of familiar term are actually, I think, actually, you know, if we're reading Paul as best I can in his first century context, is he's describing the life of, the best shorthand way of saying it is uh, the life of the resurrected dead. That uh, lots of passages that we, that pass our ears and brains, or mine at least, is just sound kind of like, oh, it's politely Christian piety. You know, stuff about walking by the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh and so on. Um, that this is not just a different way of being religious, you know, contrasted, for example, with Jewish piety centered around the, the law of Moses. But Paul's describing, uh, it's, I mean, it wouldn't even, well, he doesn't call it a kind of piety. So maybe I shouldn't call it, it's, it's not, it's not really a kind of piety. It's uh, the default, completely perfected way of life of transformed, he doesn't use the word, but the cl a close parallel would be something like angelic people that this, the state he is describing is something very close to the state of the beatific state that the resurrected are in uh, forever and ever. So that lots of what Paul's talking about most of the time is not just kind of legislating for a, uh, a polite, respectable, you know, a different pattern of religion from the Jewish one. It still is in one respect, uh, an entirely, you know, first century uh, Jewish discourse, but it's about the life 
uh, of the of the undying metamorphosed pneumatic people, and that I think is weird, but also true. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, he, he doesn't he doesn't call them you know an, an, angelikoi or whatever, but he does call them hagioi. Yeah, which which is pretty much a shorthand for celestial divine beings right yeah that's right that's where you're right translation matters right because if you if you say uh saints as in lots of english versions then it says christians right yeah yeah. (laughs) right but if you say holy ones and you you know you've recently read daniel or uh book of the watchers or something you guys oh holy ones that's angels and he does say that i mean in one corinthians that people in christ are they're like they're super angels they 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 will sit in judgment over angels so they're sort of a tier a tier of being above angels and and just below uh god himself right and they're they're brothers and sisters with the heavenly christ which is a tier higher than angels and far far higher above mortals <laughs> right and so that's that is one big and weird thing is that i think um we, even even the, those who like to think of ourselves as, as Paulinists, you know, have basically made peace with the fact that we we very likely you know live and die, and another generation will come, and and it, we don't reflect on the immortal state, you know, as 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 a near prospect. And I think he really did most of the time. So it's kind of like you're taking Paul's imminent eschatology and taking the corollary, the anthropological corollary of that and saying, well, you know, if, if Paul thinks the end is near, what does that mean for, for humans? It mean, means that they're, they're also, am I, am I, am I catching that right? Like they're also yes, pretty close. Yes, that's like, right. That's right. Yeah. And this is where Two Cities listeners should go read some forthcoming Logan Williams on this uh, question too. But yes, this is- okay. I wasn't trying to advertise myself. No, here. no, no, no. You were not. I am. I'm trying to. Uh, yes. So imminent eschatology, it gets a bit of a bad rap <laughs> and it's, it's often, it's often batted away by critics who I think are kind of focusing on the wrong thing. Like, I mean, the way it's usually talked about actually is just the delay of the parousia, right? As if, as if eschatology, you know, really just is the event of the parousia, but that's not the case. Eschatology is, <laughs> eschatology is everything. Uh, I mean, almost for Paul, but, but in particular to what you were just saying about anthropology, I think this is exactly right. Um, eschatology means the metamorphosis, that is Paul's word, the metamorphosis of Christ believers into the image of the heavenly Christ. And the parousia is, is important, but it's not just a matter of sort of, you know, um, the scholarly debates about the delay of the parousia, how big a problem is it? It's a tr- I, I think in a way how, they have the unfortunate effect of kind of batting away the massive issue of eschatology with all that it involves, like anthropological transformation um, and, and so on. So, uh, so yes, that, that is what I'm trying to bring, bring back to the, to the center of that discussion. And of, of course, the weirdness of Paul is set in contrast in his own writings uh, to his former life in Judaismos. And I'm curious if you could uh, say a bit about uh, that passage. You have an essay um, in this collection on that. And uh, it's my favorite uh, of the bunch because it's one that I got to hear live when you presented it uh, at the Galatians conference. And so I'd love if you'd share a little bit about that uh, to our listeners. 
Yeah. So Paul's letter to the Galatians is the only book in the New Testament that if you read the New Testament in English, the word Judaism will only occur in Galatians. And it occurs twice in back-to-back sentences. So if you're reading a Bible in English, it's literally the only mention of Judaism in the Bible. And in those English Bibles, that the word, the English word Judaism is glossing. Uh, it's it's transliterating a Greek word Judaismos, which uh, you know via Latin is where we get our, our word Judaism. I mean, I was familiar with the Bible first of all in English and knew this this passage, and it is it is a go to text, certainly not the only one, but because it uses the word, it's a go to text in lots of modern accounts of sort of Paul's ostensible critique of Judaism or divorce from Judaism or how. Uh, Paul, as I explained at one point in the book, is um, there's a there's a very influential reading tradition that that most of us inherit uh, that says that to study Paul is to study what Paul says about Judaism, and that what Paul thinks about Judaism, uh, according to this reading tradition, is just uh, it's wherever he's departing from it. Uh, that's that's when you really see Paul, right? So that uh, and I argue you can trace this back to. Martin Luther in particular, but this, uh, a, a search for what's really, or most importantly, or most authentically Pauline is where he's sort of doing battle with Judaism, according to this modern tradition. And I came to be just deeply suspicious of that as a, as a reading strategy. So there was that kind of, uh, herm- hermeneutical question. And then in, in, uh, that particular St. Andrew's conference paper that you and I were both at, I, I just, I did the spade work, not knowing sort of what the answer would be, but to, as to what Greek Judaismos actually means, it certainly looks like the English word Judaism. A lot of very smart people still think it does mean the English, the English word Judaism. And I think it doesn't. That was the, as a result of the spade work, I, um, what I basically found was the Greek word Judaismos is extremely rare in ancient Greek until Christians in the second century and later start using it. And then they, they use it as a contrast term for Christianismos or Christianity. But prior to the second century, it uh, occurs almost not at all, uh, only in a few Jewish texts, Galatians, it's in two Maccabees, also four Maccabees, which knows two Maccabees. And it's in a couple of later inscriptions. And in, to my own satisfaction, at least, I, I argue that in all of those instances, it doesn't mean Judaism, meaning just you know, the religion of Jewish people. Uh, that rather it means a quite narrow kind of activist program that characterizes, you know, certain really activist people or groups like uh, the Hasmoneans in two Maccabees or like Paul says he was uh, in, in Galatians one, you know, what his big claim about himself is I was not typical, right? I was uh, exceptional. And, uh, and that, exceptional occupation he had, he calls Judaismos. So all of that then sort of cashed out for me in uh, a realization that the what, what has looked obvious to a lot of people in the long history of our field that, that Paul was really all about sort of trying to break with Judaism just wasn't true. Um, and that that passage in particular, to the extent that it authorized those kinds of interpretations, uh, it was a, was a extremely shaky foundation uh, for for those kinds of readings. And then that started me off down, you know, 
other options of interpretation, rereading other passages and so on. What is Paul's uh, uh, word for what we would term the religion of the Jews? So I argue that, I mean, Paul does use terms that are very widespread. Uh, Other Jewish writers use them for what they do. I mean, Greek Jewish writers like Philo and Josephus and other ancient writers writing in Greek who are from lots of nations uh, use uh, the same cluster of words. They'll call what we would call a religion. They will often call uh, the traditions uh, or or the laws, nomoi or nomimoi. So the traditions or the ancestral traditions, the traditions of the fathers or the laws. Uh, In other words, there are non-nation specific terms for uh, custom, tradition, nation, ethe, paradoses, nomimoi, et cetera. And Paul uses that kind of cluster of words too often, but when he uses them, he's talking about the Jewish ones because he's Jewish. Uh, And and that I think is actually, that's the norm and it's we, it's a modern, innovation. The best thing I know on this is Tomoko Masazawa's book on the, the invention of world religions, that there, there's a modern, especially in the 19th century and the, the Protestant missionary movements, there's this, you know, all this energy invested in naming world religions. So a lot, most of our religionism words, um, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., is is that kind of 19th century product. But our discipline of biblical studies, which is downstream from that, 19th century development sort of in the case of Judaism, especially uh, sort of drops it down into our discourse about the Bible in ways that are misleading. Yeah. Well, speaking of modern naming and isms and misleading nomenclature um, in chapter four, in regards to the question of whether Paul abandoned monotheism, you pithily and rightly conclude that quote, Paul was just as monotheistic as his Jewish contemporaries were, which is to say moderately monotheistic by ancient standards, but not very monotheistic by modern standards, end quote. And this is a really hot topic in our field, right? And so I I was just curious whether you think that we should still use the term monotheism to describe Second Temple Judaism with all these qualifications that are necessary and given, which some, some of which you um, explain and summarize in the essay, or do you agree with Paula Fredrickson that we should just abandon this term and force it to retire? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I'm probably closer to Fredrickson's view than I am to most others in that I think I think I can get on without the term monotheism for reading most of the texts that I'm reading most of the time just fine. I'm maybe not quite as insistent as she that it be retired. Uh, I have, I have a, uh, my, my approach to a lot of these terms, I mean, I, all of our terms are, of course, outsider terms in as much as, right, we are speaking modern languages, not, uh, I mean, even modern Greeks aren't speaking ancient Greek, we're speaking uh, modern Greek, and I'm certainly not speaking ancient Greek. And conceptually, obviously, there's, I mean, many centuries of philosophical developments and so on. So we're always using, uh, every term is an imposition. And so, I, I mean, I don't just think that uh, I mean, although, for instance, I polemicize a bit about using the word Judaism in the letters of Paul, uh, that's not because uh, I think, you know, there, there needs to be necessarily an, an absolute ban on the use of uh, I mean, any particular word like this. It's, it's all, for me, it's entirely pragmatic. Words are tools, and uh, they're more or less useful depending on what it is you're trying to describe. Uh, as I was 
saying a few moments ago that to use the word Judaism in Galatians one is I think grievously misleading. And so uh, that's usually best avoided. Monotheism for ancient uh, texts, I, I am largely convinced by Fredrickson that it, it normally misleads rather than uh, helps most of the time. I think that um, Jonathan Z. Smith was basically right that monotheism when modern, especially Christian writers associate it with Judaism and not other ancient Mediterranean religions has a kind of uh, a kind of insulating or protective function. So uh, for the Christian stuff that it kind of marks it off therefore as you know not pagan and therefore good or safe or benign. And if that's the job it's doing, which I think for a lot of writers is doing, then I'm not down with that. I think I think that's unhelpful. I think it's it's a it, it facilitates a, a kind of trick of the eye, you know, confirms maybe the sort of theological biases that modern writers already have, and and so on. So yeah, for most purposes, I'm I'm happy to do away with it. I don't. I mean, I, I had many many conversations about this word with my uh, late friend and colleague Larry Hurtado, who was uh, one to, you know, uh, to go to the mat for defending monotheism and he did it better than anyone. And, uh, but, uh, when Hurtado did it really well, it was partly because he qualified and qualified and qualified it. Right. Um, so he talked about, well, the monotheism I mean is ancient and Jewish monotheism. So not, not sort of philosophical monotheism and not the monotheism of the medieval schoolmen or or moderns or whatever and to my mind there is a kind of common sense dictionary definition of monotheism that most normal people could at least recognize and it means there's only one god and that's uh and as soon as you say that uh then you're having to qualify well what are what are the many other things that inhabit the heavens that you don't want to call gods but that some of the ancient texts will call gods and it seems to me it's one of those words you have to twist yourself in so many knots to make it work just right that uh, if you don't need it, as I don't think we do, again, for most of these texts, then, you know, I, I, I just avoid doing the gymnastics and, and uh, make do with other terms. So we've been, we've been doing different series on our podcast. And one of them was, um, you know, anti-Semitism and, and kind of how the church should react with with seeing these different kind of readings in the text and, and kind of positioning ourselves in a way where we're not stuck in some of the old interpretations um, that lead to not having conversation, right? So I would say, like, as, as you're looking at, at these different essays, I know you've written on a, on a ton of different stuff, and it's really interesting to see how these are the ones that are kind of the as you're working on one project, these are the ones you're kind of doing in other different places. I would ask, like, what is probably one of the most impactful essays in this book that a pastor needs to read to, to be able to minister, to be able to preach in a way that's like right-headed and, and sending people in a, in a good, thoughtful direction? Because when you bring up those terms like modern uh, monotheism in evangelical world, right, like you're saying, it's, it's the medieval stuff that kind of comes through. It's the it's our idea of the philosophical mon monotheism rather than ancient Jewish monotheism. So yeah. that's a hard bridge to gap between scholarship, academia, and the church. So I would ask, like, hey, what's a really good essay for pastors, for preachers, for teachers to read as they're walking into this 
conversation so they can bring it to their congregations mm-hmm. and help their thinking patterns. Yeah, <laughs> I would be honored and thrilled if, uh, if a pastor or two uh, read some of these essays and, and got something useful out of them. Uh, they, I mean, they are, they're basically academic essays, but I hope not sort of, you know, hopelessly pinheaded and, and navel-gazing and ivory tower and, uh, and all that. Uh, and more so than some other stuff I've written, they do, because they're about hermeneutics and most interpretation of Paul, you know, ever has tended to happen in ecclesiastical settings, either between uh, ministers and their congregations, or even the academic stuff is, is in sort of church sanctioned institutions. I mean, I think there's somewhere I say, maybe, maybe it wasn't in this book, maybe somewhere else, but I, I was writing about these kind of hermeneutical questions around Paul and all of a sudden realized that I was sitting in this, I was sitting in my office in a 200 year old Scots Calvinist building with a statue of John Knox outside my window. And, and our building is owned by the Church of Scotland to this day and leased in perpetuity for free to the university for the teaching of theology. And so this whole, you know, the fact that my, the, the, the desk I sit at and the shelves my books sit on are, is part of this Scottish Calvinist Church of Scotland uh, tradition, which is part of the history of Protestant Northern European universities, which is where the critical study of the Bible began and still flourishes, which is why I have a job at a place like this, for which, thank you, Church of Scotland and uh, University of Edinburgh. So anyway, uh, sorry, that's a tangent, but it's just about how even this very academic stuff, you know, even when I feel bad about myself that my uh, essays sort of might not be interesting enough to pastors or lay people, it, it's institutional history, like we are part of this tradition. Anyway, to your question, the answer would be uh, either the first or the last essays or both. The last one actually is about how Protestants, and sometimes they get down in the weeds and talk about uh, Lutherans and Reformed and Wesleyans and, and so on, about kind of the work Paul is made to do in these different church uh, traditions. Yeah, uh, so it's, uh, it's citing and, you know, engaging mostly with older, more classic stuff. So there's, you know, there is some Luther and Calvin and so on in there, um, not so much very recent uh, theology proper. But uh, I mean, that is about sort of, it's, it's asking all of us to reflect on kind of the work we unthinkingly make Paul do for us and different traditions do it differently. I mean, one thing, because I work in this historically Calvinist setting and I'm talking about Paul, I mean, it's very often I find myself bumping up against this, uh, you know, the different ways the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions uh, d- deal with Moses, deal with the, the law and what role, if, if any, they think the Torah of Moses still has for Christians. And then, and then in both cases, they kind of need Paul to say for them what they, uh, they need Paul to express that for them because they're both really Paulinist traditions, but they also sit very differently to the status of the law of Moses in Christian churches. Um, anyway, so that's the last, uh, that's the last essay and that's called, uh, anti-Judaism and philo-Judaism, uh, in Pauline studies. Um, and it's about how, Christian, especially Protestant readers, kind of worked out their issues uh, with the Jews, often in, I mean, more often than not, in really, really morally bad ways, by sort of making Paul a mouthpiece for the uh, their ideas. But also in in a few, uh, far fewer, sadly, but some morally really honorable ways, especially post-Holocaust, there's some powerful examples of 
Protestant churches sort of repenting of anti-Semitism, basically. But when in the really Protestant ones, when they do that, they also do it by reading Paul. Uh, Christopher Stendhal is this example that I point to at some length there, who takes it, you know, who really just renounces a history of Protestant anti-Semitism, which tradition was based on a certain, you know, a morally very dark reading of Paul. And Stendhal rejects all that, but he does it by giving an alternate reading of Paul, which I think is fascinating. And then the, the opening chapter, which is called Our Apostles, Ourselves, uh, is about how we readers, but that especially means um, Christian readers, because that's most of us who read Paul most of the time. Not that's uh, it's not all, but demographically, certainly it is. And uh, so it's a kind of plea to to try for the for, for all of us interpreters to differentiate ourselves, to see the space between Paul and ourselves. And if there are things Paul says, well, if Paul doesn't say all that we need to say, that that's okay, that uh, interpreters of any stripe, but especially Christians who are really invested in these letters, if, you know, uh, I mean, there's a really interesting example in very recent research um, uh, that would go this way. You know, if, if the letters of Paul do not condemn the enslavement of human beings as clearly and loudly as we ought to condemn it, then it's okay. We, we just need to be a bit clearer and louder than he was. But to do that means to sort of, to be able to think about Paul and think about oneself, even if you're a, a Christian interpreter or a, a, a preacher, even if you're Martin Luther himself, uh, to be able to to take responsibility for one's own interpreting and one's own sort of moral positions, one's one's way of living in the world. I really appreciate that because the the tension that a lot of our probably listeners and, and people that are going to stumble across this podcast is where does the academic aspect of what we're what we're discussing and doing where does that feed into the church and the practical the practical stuff? And I feel that tension constantly as a guy who got his PhD and then now I'm leading a church. Um, so I think your answer is right on. Uh, I, I love the fact that there's aspects of you're wanting to make a, make somebody think. And as they think they lead, as they think, and even resetting some beliefs are also helping new Christians walk into this understanding of, and not have that kind of baggage that everybody else would bring into it from, from traditions and things like that. So I appreciate that answer. Thanks a lot. And on that point about uh, having some distance uh, between what we think about Paul and who Paul was, I love the, the book cover, uh, you know, self-portrait as the Apostle Paul, Rembrandt's self-portrait as the Apostle Paul. I think that uh, perfectly hammers home the, the point there. I love the book cover too, um, especially because academic books are not known for their covers, right? And especially Paul books, they, there's the same two or three images that every book uses. But yeah, your cover image is just so creative and just encapsulates the point that you're making, especially in the programmatic chapter. Yeah, it's it's rare that there's <laughs> it's rare that you find an image that seems such an apt sort of reference to the thesis of a book. And this was that. But it's uh, so Erdman's has this fantastic graphic designer called Meg Schmidt who who made it. And actually, my 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 baby brother who uh, is an art teacher suggested that I use that painting, and I said that's. That was what I needed. That's, that's what I needed. So yeah, I, I'm really happy about it. Uh, I mean, it is really fascinating because uh, part of the argument is this goes back to Northern European Protestantism, and here's, you know, Rembrandt in the Protestant Netherlands, and it's not right. It's not an accident that it's 
Paul, whom he paints himself as, which I just think is really fascinating. Yeah, so building off that topic of anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism, I'm wondering if you, in your research, if you came across any evidence of a connection and maybe mutual affirmation between anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism, where they end up kind of being two sides of the same coin. There's two things to say. One is I don't dig into this question, which is a very good and yeah, and a very interesting question at any substantial length in that chapter or in, or in the book. And so uh, I can't discourse on it knowledgeably at great length, but the other sort of thing to say is yes. Uh, I mean, from what I read in the research for that chapter, I mean, there's interesting and I mean, sometimes really disturbing psychological research on philosemitism. The secondary literature is not coming to mind off the top of my head. But how about uh, about how modern philosemitism has a dark side to it that, like anti-Semitism, maybe it sort of like fixates on and fetishizes a certain people group, and uh, that that's not a healthy not a healthy thing to do. So I don't mind that too much in that chapter because I, I don't think I'm in a position. Yeah, I'm not in a position to diagnose any of even the figures I talk about under the rubric of Philo Judaism there, uh, like Christopher Stendhal or Lloyd Gaston or uh, any of those. Um, well, and that's one reason I talk about Philo Judaism rather than Philo Semitism in my bit, because uh, in the instances I can look at, they're mostly post-Holocaust sort of, uh, right, interreligious. They're cases of interreligious relations, Jewish-Christian relations, and from all I can tell from reading them, the likes of Stendhal, Gaston, and others are, I mean, they seem to me to be entirely morally in the right. I mean, they're trying to repent. They're owning their church's complicitness in, in a history leading up to genocide in a Protestant uh, European country. So I, I don't... If there's any of that kind of like psychologically troubling philosemitism in any of those scholars, I I'm not aware of it. I didn't find it, but but um, but yes, I do think from what I've read that uh, you know people who fly a flag of or are labeled as by by people with the expertise to do this kind of thing, uh, philosemites, it it can sometimes have a very kind of distressing psychological underbelly, uh, where it still is a kind of, as I said, a, a sort of fixation on and fetishization of a certain uh, ethnic group. So all of these, uh, all of these essays you, you've talked about, again, they're collections of different things that you've, you've pulled together while you're working on a very specific project. Um, and you've taken big projects on in the past. So I'm, I'm very interested to, uh, to hear about what's next. What are you working on? And, uh, and what impact are you hoping it has? Yeah, the, the big book project that I had been working on since before this one, and that was then sort of <laughs> uh, unceremoniously paused during a uh, COVID lockdown when uh, the University of Edinburgh's library was locked shut with no click and collect access for a very long time. So that big project that I'm back to and hopefully nearly done now, I'm just at the end of a research leave and I've been working on it full bore, is on... It's, it's well, very close to this question 
that Logan was asking earlier about eschatology and anthropology. So it it is a, unlike the book we've been discussing, which is kind of meta, it's a, about it's about reading Paul. It's not just a reading of Paul. So this the the big book I'm working on is a a reading of large parts of the letters in what for the most part is a first century Roman period Jewish historical context. There's a bit of dialogue with the longer history of interpretation, but it's basically a kind of uh, first century historical look. Well, the subtitle of it will likely be um, Judaism and immortality in the letters of Paul for the reasons that I was saying kind of in, in response to Logan earlier that uh, we, uh, readers of Paul, as I've said, uh, you know, usually look for Paul at the points where they think he's parting ways with Judaism, which I think is a mistake. But, and so usually if you look at lots of books on Paul, there's a Judaism and something like a contrast uh, term, right? So, uh, I mean, one of the very best of these books was Sanders's Paul and Palestinian Judaism, a comparison of patterns of religion that Sanders was, uh, says, you know, Judaism taught one pattern of religion and Paul taught uh, a different one. And we can compare the two, contrast. And, and so the, the big argument of this forthcoming book is that uh, the, the only thing that you could really reasonably contrast with Judaism in the letters of Paul is the immortal life of the angels, uh, which is to say the immortal life of uh, Christ believers, as Paul sees it, that imminent eschatology which includes anthropological metamorphosis into the same heavenly state that, that the risen Christ has, is for Paul like a, uh, a present to you know, immediate future prospect, not you know, a dim and distant someday, God willing, you know, we'll, we'll get there. And so it's a reading of a lot of these texts that to the ears of those of us who are familiar with the letters sound like sort of polite Christian piety, kinds of descriptions, but actually I think they're about what for him uh, is not dim and distant future, but present because the resurrection has begun. It's a, it's a rereading of a lot of very familiar passages in Paul, including some of the kind of polemical ones and an argument that they're not sort of doing battle with Judaism as an alternate uh, form of piety, but that Paul, I mean, you know, the reason that Paul, unlike I think the uh, pastoral epistles doesn't talk about piety, Eusebia or Theosebia or anything, is because he's not thinking about mortal humans carrying on relating to the gods the way they traditionally have. He's thinking of, I mean, something akin to deification. But to make a case like that thoroughly means, you know, rereading a lot of very well worn and very contested uh, texts. But I, I think the argument works pretty well all the way through and so this book is trying to to make it uh so that i mean i would hope that you know i was saying how the issue of imminent eschatology is often kind of batted aside by you know with reference to the delay of the parousia not being a sort of anxiously discussed much in the new testament which is true but that doesn't bat away the problem of imminent or uh, the the fact the phenomenon of imminent eschatology so that's where this uh book is headed and hopefully we'll be, uh, be available at fine booksellers everywhere in another one to two years.
Well, we uh, eagerly anticipate the arrival of that of that book, and and we're just so grateful for y- your willingness to join us and have this chat about the volume that has just come out, and and we hope that our listeners will check it out. So, thanks so much for joining us, Doctor Novenson. Yeah, thank you, guys. 